Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Monday, August 29th, 2022. It's been 3,105 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 187 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. As always, let's start with an assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain that Russian forces within Ukraine are combat-destroyed, with attacks company-sized or smaller and ad hoc. There were no attempts to advance on Solidar or Bakhmut today, arguably the most critical advance, and where Russia was having the most success. Second, our assessment that more missile attacks would happen through the weekend was correct, with Russia targeting military and military support targets. Third, the International Atomic Energy Agency announced their team is en route to Ukraine and will inspect the nuclear power plant within the coming week. Fourth, Russian President Vladimir Putin is increasingly taking direct control of the, quote, special military operation and removing more and more command decisions from the Russian Ministry of Defense. Fifth, Due to the Russian military reaching a culmination point and the Ukrainian military appearing to be unable to capitalize on the loss of Russian momentum, we believe the battlefront will remain frozen across Ukraine for the short term. And finally, the initiative will go to the first belligerent who can make brigade or larger-sized combined arms offensives on any front. Let's take a look at some regional updates. Starting with the Donbass region in the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova Triangle. The Russian objective here is to maintain territorial control and ground lines of communication, control insurgency, and integrate captured territory into Russia. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent advances on Siversk, Slovyansk, and Kramatorsk, support insurgents, exploit weaknesses, and interdict supplies. There wasn't any significant ground combat in this region. Russian forces shelled Siversk and the surrounding settlements and launched multiple airstrikes on Ryorivka. In Russian-occupied Svatov, there was an explosion at what is believed to be an empty Russian military base. According to Serhii Haidai, exiled Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, Russian forces had withdrawn, leaving behind only police and territorial guard forces. There were reports of multiple secondary explosions, implying the location was an ammunition depot. Russia did not acknowledge the blast, and the general staff, 
didn't report they attacked the base. Our assessment in the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova triangle is unchanged from August 18th, which we recapped on last Thursday's episode around minute two or three. To the south in Bakhmut, the Russian objective is to maintain defensive lines, probe for weaknesses in Ukrainian defenses, and achieve a breakthrough before the start of mud season. The Ukrainian objective is to defend Bakhmut Solidar while managing equipment and personnel losses, minimize civilian casualties, and defend ground lines of communication, or GLOCs. Russian forces did not attempt to advance on Solidar or Bakhmut. We received a direct report that Solidar experienced the worst shelling to date, with Russian forces potentially setting conditions for a larger offensive. Bakhmut was shelled, and Yakovlivka was hit by an airstrike. To the south of Bakhmut, Russian forces attempted to advance on Vesela Dolina, but were unsuccessful. In the Svidlodarsk bulge, the private military company, or PMC Wagner Group, claimed to have captured the eastern half of Kodema on August 27th. That claim morphed into Kodema had been captured when shared by Deputy Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Interior Minister Vitaly Kisilev. Pro-Russian social media account Rybar threw cold water on the claim, reporting that Wagner was pushed out due to an overwhelming number of Ukrainian troops with superior location and fire control over the area. Creating further confusion, Wagner had claimed they controlled the eastern half of Kodema over two weeks ago. Through social intelligence, the exact location of the conflict line was shared, and it confirmed that our war map is accurate. There were reports that Ukraine had also pushed PMC Wagner to the eastern edge of Dacha, but we couldn't confirm the veracity of the report. Russian forces also tried to advance on Zaitseve and shelled Mayorsk around the railroad tracks. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. You can find it on Thursday's episode around minute four. In southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia, the Russian objective is to push Ukrainian forces out of firing range of Donetsk City, defend the existing line of conflict in Zaporizhia to the Dnipro River, and bring the insurrection across southwestern Donetsk and Zaporizhia under control. The Ukrainian objective is to defend the existing line of conflict while finding and exploiting weaknesses, destroy troop concentration and command and control sites, interdict supplies and disrupt logistics, and prepare for, or convince Russian forces Ukraine is preparing for, a wide-scale counteroffensive. Separatists with the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, attempted to advance on Kamyanka using reconnaissance in force, including three tanks supported by a platoon of light infantry. The whole episode was recorded by the Russian state media agency Russia Today and captured by a webcam on a water tower. The tanks entered Kamyanka, but ultimately the attack was repulsed as the light infantry took heavy losses. We geolocated the video, and based on the information, we've moved the line of conflict away from Kamyanka. We had previously assessed the village was a no-man's land and likely not defended. The DNR made two advances on Pervomaiske, and neither was successful. Pro-Russian social media account Rybar reported that Ukrainian forces are still along the E-50 ring road just south of Piski. We've recoded Piski as contested, again, after declaring it captured by Russian forces yesterday. 
Volodymyr Rehesha, the commander of the Ukrainian Santa Volunteer Unit, reported on his Facebook page that up to 500 Ukrainian troops have died defending the village. Some quick assessment. As of August 28th, the defense of Piski entered its 37th day. If the 500 number is accurate, Ukrainian forces are suffering 13 to 14 soldiers killed a day, which is not an unrealistic number. It would not be a leap to extrapolate that the DNR has suffered equal or higher casualties as the attacker having to move across open ground against fortified positions. An explosion at the chemical plant in Russia-controlled Makivka sent burning debris into nearby neighborhoods. There was chatter on social intelligence that Russian equipment was kept near the plant. Ukraine did not confirm they attacked the facility or the surrounding area, and DNR leadership didn't release a statement. Near the Donetsk-Zaporizhia administrative border, Russian forces tried to advance on Pavlivka and had no success. Orykhiv has been relentlessly hit by Russian artillery, rockets, and missiles since March. More than 90% of the civilian population evacuated months ago, but despite lying in ruins, the city was hit by at least 200 grad rockets over six hours. In Russian-controlled Melitopol, Ukraine destroyed a Russian military base using rockets fired from HIMARS. There were casualties, but specific information was not released. Our assessment for southwest Donetsk and western Zaporizhia is unchanged from August 17th. We recapped it on last Wednesday's episode around minute six. Let's move on to the Kharkiv region. In northwestern Kharkiv, the Russian objective is to prevent Ukraine from reaching the international border with Russia, protect the Belgorod-Kupyansk G-lock, and break civilian will with continued terror attacks. The Ukrainian objective is to prevent further Russian advances on Kharkiv and pressure the Russian-controlled Shevchenkov-Izum G-lock. A video on social media showed a squad of Russian soldiers in Yudi, east of the Yudi River and near the center of the village. It is possible the video was recorded around August 14th, when the Russian Ministry of Defense claimed Yudi had been captured. Not a single source reported fighting or an advance into the village on the Russian border today. The Russian Air Force attacked Ukrainian positions in Rubizhne, and two missiles struck the center of Kharkiv, destroying a three-story tall administration building. There were no casualties. Alexei Arestovich, an advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, reported that Russian forces attempted to advance, quote, in the direction of Skirpai to improve their tactical position. In his daily broadcast, Arestovich said Russian forces were trying to flank Ukrainian positions to protect the M03 highway. Some assessment here. In June, we had specific intelligence from a very reliable non-governmental source that there was more fighting happening southeast of Kharkiv than what was being reported by either belligerent. Respecting operational security and upholding our values to minimize harm in our reporting, we did not share the information, but used it to inform our analysis. After a lull, it appears fighting in the region is picking up again. Otherwise, Russian and Ukrainian forces traded artillery, rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, and indirect tank fire along the entire line of conflict. Our assessment in northwestern Kharkiv is unchanged from August 12th, 
which we last recapped on the 19th around minute 9. On the Izum axis, the Russian objective is to push Ukrainian forces back to end shelling on Izum and protect ground lines of communication, that's G-locks or supply lines, west and north of Izum. The Ukrainian objective is to defend against advances on Slovyansk and capitalize on weaknesses in Russian defenses, continue to harass and interdict Russian G-locks, and execute special operation forces raids on Russian troops located behind the line of conflict. Russian forces attempted to advance on Dolina using reconnaissance in force and fought positional battles near Bohorodichne. They also fired sporadic artillery and rockets from MLRS from Dimitrivka to Pershib. Our assessment of the Izum axis is unchanged from August 8th. To recap, we remain unwilling to call the ongoing action by Ukrainian forces a counteroffensive. We maintain that Russian forces between Avdrivka and Kopanki are now in a salient and at moderate risk of encirclement if Ukrainian forces were to make a breakthrough. It is implausible that Russian forces can secure the Donetsk Oblast by August 31st without securing Slovyansk as part of that self-declared deadline. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Looking now at the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. In Kherson, the Russian objective is to push Ukrainian forces out of artillery range of Kherson and critical G-locks, prepare for a Ukrainian counteroffensive by building defenses, and prevent the expansion of the insurgency. The Ukrainian objective is to liberate the Kherson Oblast west of the Dnipro River, and push Russian forces back far enough to end multiple launch rocket system or MLRS attacks on Mykolaiv and Kriviri. Ukraine hit a supply depot in Vokersensk, 120 kilometers southeast of Kherson. Ukraine would have used an airstrike, long-range drone, or Tachka-U to hit a target that deep in Russia-controlled territory. A Russian base in Olishki was destroyed in a HIMARS attack, the base was located in a former recreation center on the banks of the Konka River. A Russian Su-35 multi-role fighter plane fired a KH-59 land-to-sea cruise missile at Novovorontsovka from Belarusian airspace. The missile scored a direct hit on what was apparently its intended target, an outdoor public toilet. The privy was a total loss, and a tree next to it lost some branches. Fortunately, no one was in the bathroom at the time of the blast. <laughs> okay. Ukraine attacked Kherson and Novokhovka with artillery and rockets fired from HIMARS multiple times. There are reports that the crippled Kohovka Bridge was hit again. Satellite images showed that the Antonovsky Bridge remained out of commission, with no indications that repairs had started. The barge bridge Russia started to build remains incomplete, with no additional progress since August 25th. A building in the Paravozna district of Kherson was heavily damaged by artillery or rocket fire and reportedly served as a command center for Russian forces. The Sokol plant, converted into an equipment and supply depot for Russian forces, was also destroyed in an apparent HIMARS attack. 
Russian forces attempted to advance on Potomkin using reconnaissance in force. And if you're noticing a theme, you would be correct. They were not successful. Russian artillery fire became sporadic along the line of conflict, and there have been fewer troop movements. Alexei Kovalyov, a former MP of Ukraine who defected to Russia, was found dead in his Zelizny port home from an apparent attack by partisans. Kovalyov survived an assassination attempt in June. In July, Russian officials named him the Deputy Minister of Agriculture for Occupied Kherson. Our assessment in Kherson is unchanged from August 14th. We last recapped it on Saturday's episode around minute 12. In Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia, the Russian objective is to interdict personnel and equipment assembling for a counteroffensive, break civilian will with continued terror attacks, and turn popular opinion against Ukraine by terrorizing the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Ukrainian objective is to prepare for and stage a counterattack, prevent further Russian advances, and exploit weaknesses on the line of conflict. Rafael Mariano Grossi of the International Atomic Energy Agency announced that the inspection team was on its way to Ukraine and would arrive at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant within the week. Earlier in the day, the IAEA accused Russia of firing missiles on the nuclear power plant, taking a stronger position. Grossi said that the rockets hit two, quote, special buildings about 100 meters from the nuclear reactor buildings, which hit the water treatment plant, wastewater facility, and damaged some pipes. Radiation levels remain in the normal range. Russia is accused of shelling Russian-occupied in Erkhodar overnight, wounding 10 people and causing several fires across the city. Mykola Lukashuk, head of the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Council, reported Nikopol, Mirova, and Marchanets were shelled by Russian troops operating near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. There is more information on this in the War Crimes and Human Rights segment. In Zaporizhia, the Russian Ministry of Defense claims a KH-59 missile struck the Motorsik plant where Ukraine repairs and services military helicopters. Anatoly Kurtyev, acting mayor of Zaporizhia, reported the missile landed in a densely populated residential neighborhood, damaging nine apartment buildings and dozens of private homes. In the Black Sea, Crimea, and Odessa region, a Russian radar station south of Sevastopol was destroyed in an apparent AGM-88 harm missile attack by Ukraine. Publicly available satellite images taken before the attack showed a Nebo-U and Podlet-K-1 attached to an S-400 anti-aircraft rocket system where the missile struck. The AG-888 Harm is an anti-radiation missile that homes in on the emission from a radar station. Even if the radar is turned off, the missile remembers the location and will fly to the target. The S-400 is the most state-of-the-art anti-aircraft system in the Russian arsenal, and was feared by NATO nations before the Ukrainian invasion. Its performance in the field has not lived up to its advertised capabilities. To the west, a Ukrainian military base in Sarny, in Riven Oblast, was hit by four KH-59 air-to-sea missiles fired from Belarusian airspace. Vitaly Koval, head of the Riven Oblast military administration, confirmed that all four missiles hit the military base, 
but reported no casualties due to the advanced warning of the incoming attack. Ukraine did not provide any details on damage to the base. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky held a secret war convention with the heads of the armed forces, intelligence agencies, the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the Security Service of Ukraine, and other defense forces. The meeting was classified, and no readout was provided to the press. Vadim Skibitsky, the representative of the Chief Intelligence Directorate of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, or SBU, reported that Russia was planning to mobilize another 90,000 troops for the war in Ukraine. The mobilization will be done through the continued creation of volunteer units, Special Combat Army Reserve, or BARS units, and private military companies. Each district in Russia is responsible for paying, training, and equipping the new troops from their own budgets. For poorer regions, where the Kremlin is targeting its recruitment efforts, that will be a tall order. Additionally, Russia is having issues equipping separatists in the DNR and LNR and replacing lost equipment for units in the field. Some assessment here. We don't believe it will be possible for Russia to mobilize 90,000 troops before the arrival of mud season and then winter. Further, without a declaration of martial law and total mobilization, we find it highly unlikely Russia will find 90,000 volunteer soldiers willing to go to Ukraine. Ramzan Kadyrov told Chechen forces that there would be no holidays or vacations for anyone in the security forces until the war in Ukraine, sorry, the special military operation is over, saying, quote, The theme of the ongoing special military operation in the Donbass was the main one during my meeting with the commanders of the security forces of the Chechen Republic. I stressed that there should be no question of vacations until the special operation is completed. End quote. Kadyrov offered to declare a blood feud against President Zelensky and asked Putin to just turn a blind eye to the Chechen forces so he could personally end the war, quote, in a day or two. After declaring no one could take a vacation, Kadyrov returned to his palace, where he watched highlights of Mike Tyson boxing matches. The Ropucha-class ships Cesar Kunikov and Novocherkask are permanently disabled until after the war. The two vessels were damaged on March 24th when a Ukrainian missile strike on Berdyansk sunk the Saratov, destroyed fuel and ammunition supplies in the port, and badly damaged a civilian cargo ship. The captain of the Kunikov was wounded in the strike and died from his injuries three weeks later. The two large landing ships were built in Poland during the Soviet era. Poland has continued to supply spare parts for the vessels to Russia from the old Soviet stockpile. Moscow is now accusing Poland of sending counterfeit parts in 2019, preventing repairs on both ships. The engines have defective fuel injectors, and the flaw could impact another 12 Russian military vessels if the war drags out for years. We sometimes wonder if our brains are attached to the British Ministry of Defense because we often reach similar conclusions within 24 to 48 hours of each other. That is to say, we are ahead of the Ministry of Defense, not copying them. Our team wondered why General Valery Gerasimov had disappeared, as he has not had a high profile since April. 
Enter the British Ministry of Defense with a partial answer to our question, saying, quote, Recent independent Russian media reports have claimed that due to the problems Russia is facing in its war against Ukraine, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu is now being sidelined within the Russian leadership, with operational commanders briefing President Putin directly on the course of the war. Russian officers and soldiers with first-hand experience of the war probably routinely ridicule Shoigu for his ineffectual and out-of-touch leadership as Russian progress has stalled. Shoigu has likely long struggled to overcome his reputation as lacking substantive military experience, as he spent most of his career in the construction sector and the Ministry of Emergency Situations. End quote. Shoigu is a frequent target of our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin Strelkov, who refers to Shoigu as the, quote, plywood general when he isn't mocking his racial heritage. It doesn't solve the mystery of where Gerasimov vanished after his last major public appearance on June 27th when he inspected Russian troops in Ukraine. Putin's personally controlling the war from his bunker in Moscow has likely pushed Gerasimov to the side. It is worth noting that Russian President Putin has no formal military training or experience. A quick assessment. History has shown that authoritarian rulers always believe they are smarter than their generals. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A woman was killed when Russian troops shelled Nikopol. The 67-year-old woman was killed in her home, and four more civilians were wounded, three hospitalized. The United States Department of State confirmed a 24-year-old American citizen from Tennessee was killed in combat in Ukraine. The DNR claims the man was killed in Yehorivka on August 23rd, and they had recovered his body. The DNR has said they will work with the United States to return the body for burial. In economic news, the ruble opened lower this morning, with the exchange rate at 61 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil opened higher, with West Texas Intermediate, or WTI, at $93 a barrel in pre-session trading, and Brent at $101 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline is trading lower at $2.81 a gallon, or $0.74 cents a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures were unchanged over the weekend, trading at $0.80 cents a bushel for December 2022 delivery. In some late-breaking news announced at 3.56 a.m. Seattle time, the counteroffensive has officially begun. A statement from the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reads, quote, Today, August 29th, work began with new intensity. In the Kherson region, explosions are constantly heard. GMLRS have been working on targets since night. Technology and aviation began to move. The infantry received orders. The sword that must strike the satanic fascist army has been brought. End quote. All of us are committed to the code of ethics established by the Society of Professional Journalists. One of the pillars of the code of ethics is to minimize harm. Due to the sensitive nature of the counteroffensive, 
We will not be sharing information that does not come from official government sources in the public domain or reports publicly available through social media. We thank you for your understanding. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.